Ooh, another episode of the podcast coming at you hot. Great show. We have Dr. Casey Means on the show. She's a co-founder of Levels Health. She's a Stanford-trained physician, a former surgeon. She's now really passionate about metabolic health and digital health. We talk all about nutritional health, our microbiome, um, how you know what is metabolism like our chronic inflammation in today's society and how that's causing a ton of chronic chronic diseases um really dig into the latest research on metabolic metabolic variability between people um you know some of the new studies coming out using the continuous glucose monitoring we also talk about the startup levels health which is you know in the kind of a beta mode right now launching later this year very fascinating they're helping folks really track their metabolic health, track their glycemic response via this via this patch. I urge you to check it out. I'm going to sign up. I think it's really interesting. I really want to know how my own glycemic response is affecting everything I do. Um, we learn a ton. We have a few laughs. It's a great show. Enjoy. And also find Dr. Casey Means at Dr. Casey's Kitchen on Instagram, CaseyMeansMD.com, uh, LevelsHealth.com. And if you want to see me roll my eyes, move my, wave my hands around, we're now on YouTube, youtube.com, Pavelcast. Please enjoy. Love it. Um, everybody, welcome to another beautiful episode of the Pavelcast. And we have a, a real get for a guest here today. Dr. Casey Means, what should I call you, Casey? Casey. Of course. Okay, that's what I thought. Um, thank you for coming on the show. How are you? <laughs> I'm doing great. It's great to great to see you. Yeah, happy Friday, Shabbat Shalom. So, let's tell people a little bit about your story because I think it's pretty fascinating and interesting. So, you are a doctor. You're still practicing, and um, you you went from actually what I found fascinating as I was reading about it. You went from being a surgeon first to becoming like really into functional medicine, and now you're helping the startup levels, which is doing like a a really interesting thing with data and metabolism and, and we could and i really want to talk about that but first i want to talk about you like um yeah tell me your story how did you end up like surgeons they're like the highly paid everybody wants to be a surgeon super competitive and you just decided to let that go i did i did confusing a lot of people along the yeah. way but best best decision of my life um to move from surgery to digital health but it it kind of starts it kind of starts a little farther back. So I'll start, I'll start Please, with yeah, of course. the origins. I was born on, you know, um, <laughs> but I, you know, so I was super fortunate to be at Stanford as an undergrad during like the height of the human genome project. Um, mm -hmm. The human genome project had like just kind of been wrapping up when I started college there. 23andMe was starting direct consumer genetic stuff. So like personalized medicine was super hot right mm -hmm. when I got there. And so that was really my big focus. I majored in, you know, personalized health, personalized genomics. I worked at 23andMe in college. And my whole framework for seeing the human body was just that we are these, you know, unique biochemically individual blueprints. And basically health is basically differential expression of these blueprints and environmental inputs is what is the lever that you can kind of pull to change the expression. Mm -hmm. So that mindset was very empowered in the sense that like, you know, we have this template and that template is uniquely ours, but we have a lot of agency and control over how it's expressed. So flash forward, you know, I go to medical school and what's interesting is that like our common medical paradigm is actually very different than this. The way that we practice medicine 
is a little bit, a lot bit um, more cookie cutter. You know, mm -hmm. a lot of medicine now is pattern recognition. So, you know, you have a patient, a patient has a, has a set of symptoms and signs, signs being more objective data, symptoms being subjective data. And if all those things match up, you label a diagnosis. And then based on that diagnosis, you turn around and you have, you know, some set of interventions, whether it be surgery um, or a medication. And, and that's basically the way medicine is practiced. It's, it's really, um, you know, kind of textbook. And so medical school is really about learning all those patterns. You know, you learn like 15,000 new words in medical school. It's crazy, right. but really it's about labeling and reflexive action. Um, so that was coming from my perspective, a little bit disheartening, um, but you know, so I'm in medical school. That's kind of what I'm learning. Not a lot of focus. Oh, so you're feeling already in medical school, like this is not my jam a little bit, like the way it's, the way medicine is practiced basically in the world. Yeah. But at least the U.S. system, I guess. And I think it is uniquely prominent in the U.S. system. Yeah. I talked to some of my colleagues from um, South America or especially you know, Asia and yeah. Japan, China, and it's a completely, it's a completely different approach. Obviously everything's moving in that sort of like westernized direction, but, but in, in the, in South America, in, um, you know, Japan, China, there's still very much this focus, India as well, um, of nutrition, herbs, micronutrients as a huge part of health. And that's still even a part of mainstream medicine. So, so a doctor in that country is actually going to help you with your diet, prescribe you I mean, I've, obviously Chinese herbs, right? That comes to mind, like Chinese herbal medicine. But like, you're not thinking that. You're saying they take a more holistic approach to it, even Ab like, yeah. Absolutely, yeah. yeah um, so, you know, and that's something that, um, you know, is, is we've sort of lost. We really don't talk a lot about nutrition um, in, in medicine in the United States. And the average medical student actually gets around like four hours of nutrition training in, in their entire medical school training, which is, kind of incredible because the majority of the healthcare costs we're spending today, so about $3.4 trillion a year in healthcare costs, about 80% of those are from chronic diseases that are based in diet and lifestyle. So you would think that the biggest lever we could possibly turn in terms of you know, increasing productivity, decreasing suffering and mortality and morbidity, and also lowering our healthcare costs is to train doctors exquisitely on nutrition and lifestyle interventions, of which there's hundreds of thousands of papers on PubMed showing that these interventions are extremely effective for chronic mm -hmm. diseases. So, you know, long story short, that that became a big, you know, a kind of sticking point for me in medical school. And actually something, you know, just like a, a funny little anecdotal aside, I something that really bugged me in medical school was during our cardiovascular block, we were talking all the time about how important, you know, like, Oh, you should tell your patients to exercise. Um, and here we are, medical students sitting in this dark room for eight to 10 hours a day, sitting in these chairs with virtually zero time in between classes to even go to the bathroom. And so I'm like, we're actually engaging in the behaviors that are risk factors for the diseases that we're studying. Not to mention, we only have access to our cafeteria food here, which is terrible and full of all the things that we're saying we shouldn't be telling patients to eat. So it was, it was funny. And I actually initiated this big launch where I, I tried to get Stanford to put standing desks in all the classrooms and, um, and so I'm doing a big pilot study on that. And, um, you know, the students really, really liked it, but you know, so, so that was kind of a lot yeah, of it's interesting. I, what do you think it is? Like, is it, I mean, obviously our society is like this, right? So we have, 
even though we understand that diet and exercise is so important and, and the stats are there and the data is there, it's like a, this, like a almost cognitive dissonance that we just don't, we just don't do anything about it as a overall, I think society, let's call it, I don't know, culture, something. I mean, just even the medical school, they're saying one thing, but you're doing something completely different. Why? Well, I think that, you know, behavior really follows the money and, um, we are, because of the way that our healthcare economics have been set up over the past 50 or 60 years, you know, we really haven't incentivized um, techniques that are like preventative or these reversing or preventing. So, the middle of the 20th century, this fee-for-service model with healthcare, which is basically that you pay for, you get, you, you get paid as a clinician or as a hospital for doing things. So there's a bias towards action, there's a bias towards right. doing. Um, you can only really do things to people who are sick um, or who have a problem. And um, so that subtly feeds into systems that sort of, you know, basically incentivize people to, you know, if you, if you get a patient totally healthy, you lose a customer, essentially. Right. Right. And I don't think that plays out on the individual doctor's mind at all. But I do think that on a systems level, when we're driving research, we're driving medical education initiatives, there's, there's no question that that subtly plays in. And there's other models of healthcare economics, which do tend to promote prevention more. So that's more of like a capitated or an HMO model where basically you're paid some lump sum of money for a single patient. And then the system has to figure out how to use that most effectively and kind of what's left over is their bottom line. So mm -hmm. then you're looking for the highest value interventions, value being cost over outcome. So you want lowest cost, best outcome is highest value. And so that is, so, so what we know about high value interventions, nutrition and exercise counseling and coaching are some of the highest value interventions and ROI you could possibly have. So in those systems, places like Kaiser um, and large sort of HMO type hospital systems, you start to see more investment in systems for keeping people healthy. So, you know, there's a lot, I think that's rooted in healthcare economics and we definitely, you know, there's some inkling that we're moving in the right direction with the initiatives towards value-based care. I think there's a lot of problematic stuff with that as well. Um, but it's a whole, whole different story. But yeah, we could probably go on hours for that. Yeah. Inkling would be, I love that term because that's, that, that's the best way to put it. Inkling. Yeah. Um, yeah. It's interesting. My favorite, one of my favorite stories about pop health, I think it was Cone health. Um, was it in Georgia or something? Basically they have this population. People are getting, I think a lot of like asthmatics, they just kind of dump it on a dashboard. They see a concentration, they go in to figure out in this neighborhoods, like the ducks are like full of mold. So they, the hospital system pays to like fix all this housing, which you would think is like, what does that have to do with healthcare? But because they're in this value-based care system, it was like tremendously huge ROI on that investment, which has nothing to do with healthcare. That is absolutely fascinating. Yeah. yeah, there have been actually models done, financial models that have been published that say basically if you give sick patients, you literally pay for their food and give them food for free, mm -hmm. it would be it would save our it would save us hundreds of millions of dollars of healthcare mm -hmm. costs. So it's interesting. Okay, so you are okay, you're like I'm seeing this stuff happening in this uh this healthcare system, what I'm learning, and I'm not, this is weird. I want something different. What happens next? 
So yeah, so in medical school. So then I got totally bit by the surgery bug. Um, Surgery is very exciting. As a medical student, it's very sexy. You know, you're like, I'm in the operating room, I'm a beast. And so, you know, it was, that is, that was really compelling to me, both for just like, yeah, that sort of ethos, but also I was like, okay, here's a field where I can go in and I can go into the operating room and I can fix something. Someone has a lump in their neck, I'll take it out. Someone has a clogged sinus, I'll bust a hole in it, I'll get the pus out. Like it's very, you just feel like it's like, you know, um, you kind of have these tangible results at the end of the day, as opposed to a primary care doctor, where sometimes you're not seeing the effects of your advice for months and months, if if ever. So went into head and neck surgery, um, became a head and neck surgeon, and you know, the same little lingering stuff came creeping up. So of sort of like that, you know, wanting to see more of a personalized approach. So I'm, I'm in the operating room and I'm doing a lot of vocal cord surgery, sinus surgery, ear surgery, and thyroid surgery. Cause it's all, it's all head and neck okay. stuff. And what I'm realizing is that every condition I'm treating is a chronic inflammatory condition. So chronic ear disease is the tube that connects your ear to your nose is inflamed and you get pus built up in the ear. So you put a little ear tube in the pus drains. Sinusitis, inflammation of the nasal tissue. It gets inflamed, it gets swollen, pus builds up in the sinuses, you punch a hole in it, you let the pus strain. You know, thyroiditis is inflammation of the thyroid. Vocal cord granulomas. Is there a pus there too? There, not usually. <laughs> not there. When there's pus in the thyroid, you've got a, you've got a big problem. problem. All right, all right. But, um, and that's not generally actually a surgically treated disease, but thyroid inflammation, which is called Hashimoto's thyroiditis, is becoming pretty rampant. Um, and, and then vocal cord diseases like vocal cord polyps and granulomas. I mean, these are inflammatory masses. So I'm sitting there like, okay, I'm treating inflammatory conditions with surgery. That doesn't make a lot of sense. Why is everyone so damn inflamed? And why are we giving people these packs of steroids, which are anti-inflammatories and not mentioning anything about the different things that can cause inflammation, which I think it's becoming more and more understood widely that you know, chronic inflammation underlies a lot of disease and the stuff that we're putting in our bodies and exposing ourselves to in the environment are huge inflammatory triggers. What's, um, what's inflammation? I mean, like what's the biological, what's happening underneath? Yeah. So our immune system is this beautiful part of the body that's meant to essentially surveil our bloodstream and our tissues at all times for any potential threat. Mm-hmm. And, and then go and attack it and fight it. And then the cells, the, the little immune cells that find the threat, they then release signals that tell all the other cells in the body, like, get activated, we're going to war, mm-hmm. we have something to fight. So for you know, a bacteria or a virus, obviously this is extremely helpful, but those are not um, the only threats that our bodies sense. Our bodies can sense threat in a variety of different ways. So if you're being chased by a lion and you are, you know, this is ancient times, you're being chased by a lion, your body has a huge stress response. And that alone, that stress response will activate your immune system because your body is preparing Mm -hmm. for a potential injury. So stress is a huge trigger of inflammation. And a really, I think a good framework for thinking about inflammation is acute and chronic inflammation. Acute inflammation is like you cut your finger, a little bit of bacteria enters, your immune system goes, it releases signals for a bunch of immune cells to come that causes your finger to become red and swollen. And then in a few days it all resolves Mm -hmm. and you've healed. So that's great. Now chronic inflammation is more something like 
you have gut dysfunction. Your microbiome is screwed up. And so now your gut lining is like constantly, like your, your gut barrier has become a little bit like tattered. And, and mm -hmm. now all of a sudden, every day, every time you eat, little teeny bits of bacteria are kind of constantly getting into your bloodstream. And now your immune system is like, hmm, I always have to be on alert. I am always sending signals that there is a threat. Mm -hmm. And that can be extremely sort of damaging to the body. Another thing that can do this is chronic stress. So, you know, we live in a, even though we don't have a lot of like really massive corporeal threats, like getting, you know, very unlikely we're going to get shot, very unlikely we're going to get chased by a lion. And yet our bodies still think we're under constant stress because, you know, honking, the cell phone going off, the emails, the constant meetings, you know, all these things are interpreted by our body in the exact same way as a real physical threat. So that chronic stress is telling our immune systems, get, get ready, Some, a problem could be happening. Mm -hmm. And so when that's happening all the time, it can be very destructive to the body. It takes a lot of resources um, to mount an immune response. So that's kind of what, when we talk about inflammation as the root of disease, we're talking about this maladaptive sort of unnecessary chronic inflammation that is kind of a function of, of our modern lifestyles. Uh, yeah, modern life is going to kill us, it sounds like. Maybe you can help us. <laughs> um, okay, okay. So that's interesting. So, okay, so we have the inflammation. You start noticing that as you practice surgery that you're treating all these things, and it's a classic, classic human, like we messed up, but now we're going to fix it just by – you know, cutting it off and, and let's pay a bunch of money on it. Right. I'm sure there's that piece of it. Like you said, the health economics keeps driving it more. Um, what do you decide to do? You decide to just up and quit. Like I'm done this. So, yeah. So I started, it really was a journey, an intellectual journey of really trying to figure out what the root causes of inflammation were. And, and what that really led me to was metabolic health, which is what led to levels. And so understanding sort of metabolic health and its relation to inflammation was like hugely eye-opening to me. And one of the parallels I was seeing was that a lot of the inflammatory chemicals that are released, these what are called cytokines and these like cellular mediators of inflammation mm -hmm. are the same things that we're seeing in a lot of these chronic lifestyle diseases that we're seeing. So obesity, diabetes, heart disease, they all have a similar signature um, as the illnesses I was treating in ENT. And so there was this really interesting relationship between metabolic health, which is just rampant in our country, obesity, diabetes, heart disease, Alzheimer's, stroke, et cetera, all these things that are related to metabolic disease and what I was doing. And so I kind of got pretty obsessed with this, this concept of metabolic health and why are we so metabolically un unhealthy right now? Why This is a key root cause of our inflammation, mm -hmm. our metabolic dysfunction. And what are we doing to ameliorate this? I mean, the USDA puts out a food pyramid that doesn't help really at all with metabolic disease. Doctors don't have any idea how to recommend, you know, the right diets or exercise regimens or anything. So who, who is fixing this? Because it's driving the majority of our healthcare costs. It's driving the majority of suffering and it's driving the majority of what's going to the operating room. So I said, you know, at first I was thought I spent some time, a couple years thinking, how can I merge the surgical world with this and kind of have this like hybrid practice. And then Ultimately, I realized that the, I've been fortunate to have over a decade of medical training and that we don't need a few more head and neck surgeons in the world. Like we need people to be working on solving this massive metabolic health crisis full time. And 
and that I, I needed, I just felt I needed to focus on that issue with my career. And so, um, yeah, in terms of, that's awesome. You know, yeah, yeah, I mean, the root cause will be hard to fix, though, as I'm sure you know, but it's fun to try. <laughs> yeah, I, I think we're making progress. <laughs> um, so metabolic health, it's metabolism. Is that just like basically burning calories into energy to support your body? Is that what it is? I mean, how, do you, how would you explain it to a layperson? Yeah, so I would sort of stepping back, just like what is metabolism, I would define it as metabolism is the set of all sort of cellular mechanisms that generate energy from our food and environment to basically mm -hmm. power every single cell in our body. So every cell in the body in order to function, you know, we're made of trillions of cells, um, needs energy, cellular energy in the form of like what's called ATP. ATP, and so, baby, yep. Yeah, ATP. And, um, an efficient metabolism is foundational for basically all health because it's how cells run. So what does what does efficient mean in that scenario? I would say efficient means that we are digesting, processing, transporting, utilizing, storing, and excreting all our energetic substrates in a way that does not cause an imbalance. So, okay. you know, you take it in, you process it, you use it, you either store it properly or you excrete it. And when something is wrong there, um, it's inefficient. So this comes down to, if you're going from mouth to cell, basically we're talking, uh, efficient means a well-functioning microbiome, a well-functioning digestive tract, mm -hmm. you know, a circulatory system that's working a hormonal system that is letting you actually, you know, take up energy into cells properly. Like you usually need a hormone to get energy moved in the right direction. Mm -hmm. Then you need intracellular processes like the mitochondria, which are the part inside the cell that process energy to be working properly. And then you need all your excretion. So your, your, your liver metabolism, your, you know, uh, bowel movements, all of, yeah, exactly. Yeah. All of that, every step of that. And on top of that, the nervous system, because what causes the gut to move, what causes blood vessels to dilate mm -hmm. nerves. So every aspect of that needs to be working in just like a beautiful symphony for it to work properly um so that's kind of what i mean by that sounds very complex like there's a lot of moving parts there there are but i would say like foundationally the number one thing that is easy and actionable is basically to not overload the body with energetic substrates so that like if you put you know for instance tons and tons of carbohydrates and glucose into the body in a, in a quantity that we were never, ever meant to process. Mm -hmm. There's almost nothing you can do with that symphony to make it work right. And that's sort of the state that we're in right now is we have what I would consider like glucose and carbohydrate toxicity. We're eating, you know, we ate like two pounds of sugar a hundred years ago per year. And now we're eating on average like 150 pounds of sugar per year. So that, wow. that when you think about it, it is complex, but like in terms of lowest hanging fruit, like there, there are things that are just no amount of nuanced finesse is going to fix it. And so I think the biggest one for that is our, is our glucose, you know, intake because it's just astronomically increased over the past hundred years. Yeah. I mean, sugar addictive. Feels addictive to me. When I it eat my cookies, I want to have more cookies, and then the box is gone. I mean, mice will choose to eat to eat sugar more than they'll choose to eat cocaine. So it's very really yeah. wow. 
Huh, how come it's, and, and so, you know, I've personally had a whole experience with sweets and having kind of a addiction to sweets that can fuel like binge eating, which I've, I've worked on as better now. And, um, and I've, for a while I was keto. So mm. I, I really low carb and felt great. Energy levels were great. And then I got sucked back in because, you know, you, you just want to have a slice of pizza, then you're going to have a cookie. And I find it really difficult to, I mean, to keep my carb intake under like 20 grams or whatever it was mm -hmm. when, to get into ketosis. So well, my first question is, so beforehand, like our 100 years ago, which is, I mean, I'm, I'm thinking about what about a thousand years ago? Because our bodies haven't evolved that much. How much are we, we eating then? I mean, yeah. So were we actually doing like under 20 grams or is it, was it also like it probably a thousand years ago was very different with hunter gatherers. Maybe it's easier to compare to a hundred years ago, but I'm trying to understand like, um, were, were we living in this kind of good, no problem metabolic health system for a long time? And most recently with the explosion of obesity that it all correlates basically because our, we have changed our society and culture. Is that too too easy of a connection? No, I think that I think that you're right on the money. I mean, we've seen just sort of astronomical increases in um, diseases related to glucose um, yeah. management over the past hundred years. Exp exponential rises, even in the mm -hmm. past thirty years. You know, these things have jumped three three x um, mm -hmm. for many of these diseases. So, you know, and it's not to say that that people were universally healthier throughout history, our lifespan has, has increased over the past hundred years oh, yeah. massively. And, and so, you know, there's a lot of different things at play and that, that increase in lifespan, you know, I would attribute life largely to reduction in infectious disease, you know, hygiene, um, antibiotics, um, reducing infant mortality, et cetera. But when we look at morbidity, so how long the process of decline at the end of life is is happening. You know, we start people start getting sick and and trailing off towards essentially uh, a death, starting in their like 30s, 40s, 50s now. And so there's these decades of sort of decay and you know increased suffering that we're seeing that um, you know is is virtually needless for most people. And so um, yeah, but I think you wait. Know, what are you saying? You're saying that people are now because they're sick with like, let's say diabetes and they're overweight for like 40 years of suffering. Is that what you're saying? They're just kind of. I, that sort of slow decline towards slow decline. towards death, like is, is. Um, oh, it used to be boom, you're, you're gone. Now yeah. we're just, I see what you're saying. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Hmm. So, okay. So this is interesting. So then that obviously goes to levels with the continuous glucose patch. So I mean, it's some sugar is okay. Sugar is a, is a, is a broad term. So okay, that's right. a lot of different forms of sugar. I would say from my standpoint, the human body doesn't really need any refined sugar. So sugar that's been taken from a whole food processed, that it's just sugar alone in a really easy digestible, quickly absorbable form. That's not something that the body needs to function. Yeah. Sugar in whole food forms, um, in traditional quantities, um, it is, you know, can definitely be certainly part of a healthful diet. Um, you know, the community, the keto community obviously keeps carbs extremely, extremely low. Um, but, but I'm 
you know, of the camp that, that for a well-functioning, highly efficient body, we can certainly process a normal amount of sugar from whole foods. So, you know, small. What's the number to that? Do you have one? A number? You yeah. know, that's the thing. It kind of differs for everyone. And this is exactly why, you know, I'm working on what we're building at levels, which is that every single person responds to glucose differently. So you and I could both eat an apple and my glucose could rise, you know, 50 points, which is a lot. And your glucose might rise two points. And that has to do with a lot of different factors, which we over the past few years have learned what those are. A huge one is the microbiome. A big mm -hmm. one is body type, insulin sensitivity, and then other lifestyle factors, like just how much sleep you got, how much exercise you've done. All those things will basically translate that food into what actually happens in your bloodstream. And what matters is what's actually happening in your bloodstream. So to say some, a blanket statement about carb quantity doesn't actually, we're learning that that doesn't really make sense because there's such mm -hmm. an amazing amount of biochemical individuality. Um, and and the, the research group out of the Weissman Institute in Israel, they published a paper in this big journal cell in 2015 called, um, uh, that was called prediction of personalized glycemic responses, um, through continuous glucose monitoring. It was basically, they put, they took a bunch of healthy people. They put continuous glucose monitors on their arms. They gave them a bunch of different test meals and they saw that there's massive variability in how each food raises blood sugar. And so what that says to us is there's probably not a universal diet for everyone. There's probably a personalized diet for each person. And um, if we want to keep our glucose low that and stable, that's going to look different for every single mm, person. Fascinating. And, and this gets very interesting also with the keto community, because right now we just have these like strict blanket keto diets that basically say, keep carbs super low, but we actually don't really care about keeping carbs low. We keep care about keeping blood glucose low. And those two things are increasingly being understood to be very different things, carb quantity intake and glucose elevation. And so I personally think keto is going to move into a keto 2.0 sort of version, which is, you know, individually informed through data. And I think, especially when people in, who are using levels and who are keto, we've actually found the overwhelming response to be that they have been able to liberalize their keto diets because right. they've bet. learned things that don't actually spike their glucose or kick them out of ketosis. So it's pretty fascinating. Um, so yeah, so let's talk some levels, right? So how long has this continuous glucose monitor thing existed? Like the, the patch that's that you have on? Yeah. Like the Abbott one or whatever. This technology has been around for over 10 years. And okay. this is a hardware that is three companies have CGM hardware, uh, Medtronic, Abbott, and Dexcom. And these are devices that have been traditionally used for an FDA approved for type one and two diabetes management. So it mm -hmm. tells people basically how to dose their medications. Yeah. How frequently does it sample? So it, so I, I'm using the Freestyle Libre, which is by Abbott. And that is what, um, what Levels uses in our program. Um, and that is going to automatically in the background sample glucose every 15 minutes, 24 hours a day. And then the sensor stays on your arm for 14 days. So you're getting, you know, thousands and thousands and thousands of data points that are just automatically happening in the background. When you scan the sensor against your phone, it will transmit all that data from whenever the last time you scanned to your phone. Sure, and then sure. anytime you take your phone and scan, you can like override that 15 minutes. So you could scan every 30 seconds if you want to, but, but the, if you just scan 
um, every few hours, you'll just get chunks of data from every 15 minutes. Okay. And, um, why doesn't everyone do that? So my grandma has diabetes and she like pricks her finger. This thing sounds nicer because then you don't have to do anything. You just kind of put it on once and all the data is being collected. You can always just check and figure out what you need to do. Yeah, it's, it's pretty wonderful. Um, some of the biggest issues with people using this for diabetic management is just the way that insurance reimburses it for them. So we're a completely separate use case because we're using this for, you know, health seeking uh, individuals without diabetes. And so we're not in the insurance sort of model at all. But for people who do have um, met, like diagnosed metabolic disease and need this for treatment, you know, often it, it, it just truly hasn't caught on in all parts of the country. People who use it are, are obsessed with it. It, right. it makes life so much easier, no more finger pricks, way more data much more granularity, but it's just, you know, it hasn't, it hasn't made it to, to, you know, all parts of the country and also, uh, insurance companies, um, there's sometimes difficulty with access. So, which is sense. a real, which is a real shame because it really should be available to every single person with, with yeah, if you're listening, uh, Edna, fix it. Yeah. And I think <laughs> no, I'm with you. I agree. Cost savings for them because, you know, medication mismanagement, I mean, it would, it would eliminate a lot of problems. And also the data for type people with type one and type, type two diabetes shows that this, since it helps you manage your medication with more granularity, it actually lowers people's hemoglobin A1C and other markers of that's a three month average of blood glucose. So, you know, it would, I think we'll get there, but um, yeah. Not there yet. What's uh, from the time I eat to the time my blood glucose has to have a response. How, what's the time there? probably differs for people, but still, does it range? Yeah, it differs for people, but, but if you look at big studies of, of non-diabetic individuals who are wearing continuous glucose monitors, people peak their glucose at about between 45 minutes and 60 minutes after eating. So it's very, very fast. Mm -hmm. um, you can start to see a rise within five, 10 minutes. If you eat a big, a big load of glucose, you'll start to see the rise immediately. So this is hitting your GI system dumping into your bloodstream and and then you know you're getting readings super duper quickly which makes it a really cool dietary biofeedback tool because there's there's no delay you know exactly a one-to-one -one relationship between what you're eating or what you're doing and what's happening to your glucose so you can now you know say i know that this is a problem for me or i know that this is good for me i know this food combination is good for me metabolically whereas before, you know, there was no closed loop system with nutrition. You sort of like, you might eat four meals in a day and then mm -hmm. the next day you weigh yourself and you're like, well, I don't know. who knows like which aspect of the day did like change the, the needle on the scale. But with this, it's like instant and you can start to say, well, okay, this food is not right for me, not helping with my health goals. It's gone. So that closed loop is really what, what people are finding, I think, hugely valuable with the product. So, and I, I saw, you know, in your ads or whatever, there's like different zones. What, mm -hmm. What's that mean? Yeah. So backing up like for optimal health and to, to move towards optimal metabolic health, which is just associated with a whole range of health benefits. Um, you want to keep your glucose from spiking after a meal. You want it to be essentially instead of an up and down jagged line, little mountains and valleys, you want it to essentially be flat with like maybe some little gentle rolling hills. And that's what you want to see 
on this graph of your glucose curve. So that's just like backing up. You want less variability. And over time, as you have less variability, you're, you know, and keep your glucose low during the day, you're going to essentially make those processes we talked about more efficient, especially in regards to hormones. Insulin, which is the hormone that causes your cells to take up glucose. When you constantly have high insulin because you're eating lots of carbs, your cells become a little bit numb to it. And so that makes your glucose start creeping up all the time. And so as you keep variability down, as you keep glucose low with better food choices, your insulin sensitivity starts to go up again. And so that line over time is better and your variability is going to get better. So we want low variability. We want low healthy values. Um, and that's kind of, that's kind of the goal. So getting into um, zones. So, you know, we've been, our company has been around for about a year. We've been running a beta program for about six months and we've had about 600 customers come through and give us constant feedback. And people love seeing their glucose line, but a lot of people wanted even simpler metrics of like, tell me good or bad. Like, I love the, the curve of the 24-hour glucose, but like, I want to know yes or no, like, how bad is this food for me? How bad is this activity for me? Mm -hmm. And so we came up with proprietary scores called, called zone scores, which essentially um, take a number of different aspects of the glucose curve, like how high your spike goes, what level you started at, like what the delta is, and a number of other things, merges it into a composite metric that's just a one through 10 score. This is good, this is bad. So for me, 10 is really good, perfect score, basically like a flat line after a meal. And so for me now, I've got like, I've been doing this for months. So I've got like dozens of foods that are eight, nines and tens for me. And basically now that's like all I eat. Like I never will eat things now that were a one, two or three, because I know it's not good for me. And now I know. And how do you feel? Do you feel amazing? I feel, I feel great. Yeah. Cool. Yeah. And the, the concept of zones as opposed to like a, a meal score, we call it a zone score because the cool thing about glucose is that it's affected by more than just food. We talked about stress, yeah. but it's also affected significantly by sleep um, and exercise. So the four biggest levers for what affects your glucose, which makes sense because they all kind of have to do with energy, is sleep, food, exercise, and stress. So what we do, is, and if you, let's say you are on a stressful phone call and you eat a meal, both of those things could be impacting your response. So we have people basically log all these different things, or we have device integration with Apple Health Kit, so we know some of these things as well. And so we say, you, we can't just say like that meal did this to you. This combination of variables together had this outcome. And so that's a zone. So if things are in close succession, we, you have to lump them together because biologically, they're all translating into the same thing. So then what our software can do is parse out the weight of these different these different variables and start telling people like when you do x y and z you have the best response like now you have these new tools in your toolkit to know how to basically manage your glucose going forward so that's the concept of zones okay that's interesting so what happens after exercise does mm -hmm. it always go up or go down or what happens during is it is it or is it yeah tell me it's a great question. So uh, basically any exercise that you do over the long term will make your glucose better. Exercise makes us more insulin sensitive. So our cells just like respond to that insulin, take up the glucose, process it well. 
exercise is one of the best things we could possibly do for long-term glycemic health. However, in your actual workout, you might see some really interesting things based on the intensity and type of the workout that you're doing. So high intensity interval training, like HIIT training, which is super popular now, people are actually going to see an increase in glucose when they're doing HIIT training. So if you're, you know, 80% of more of your heart rate or VO2 max, which we would kind of consider, you know, a HIIT workout, that actually is an acutely very stressful moment for the body. And you're going to dump out all these stress hormones, cortisol, catecholamines, and that's going to tell your body there's threat. You're being chased by a lion. And what's going to actually happen is because your body thinks that you're in threat and you need all this energy for your muscles, you dump out all this stored glucose from your liver to flood the bloodstream. You actually, you can, yeah. And you can just get like this big, big spike and it actually overcompensates. So you get this big increase in dumping of glucose, but your muscles only need a little bit more. And so there's a mismatch and you get this spike. That is actually, it's not like a food related spike. It's actually hit training is associated with a really good glycemic control. And so that's, we actually, in our app, we're, we allow people to label if it's a hit training workout and we have the heart rate data to kind of let us know. So that's not going to be penalized in terms of your overall scores, but, but that's something you might see if you so, do a much, oh, go ahead. No, I was going to say like, so does that mean a high glucose response is not bad necessarily? It, it just depends on all these other factors, huh? Well, it, it's sort of, it's complex, sort of like what's going on with the physiology. So eating glucose and having it released into your bloodstream is a whole different set of chemical processes right. than your body just releasing some glucose mm. from the liver. Okay. Um, and there's actually interesting things that happen um, with glucose and insulin with exercise. So right after exercise, your muscles actually can take up glucose independent of insulin. So there's a lot of like complexity okay. of what's happening with exercise, but from everything we can tell from the literature, high intensity training, even though it does sometimes have a little bit of a glucose elevation, is actually very advantageous to overall glycemic control. And people can actually see a decrease in glycemic variability the day after a HIIT mm -hmm. workout. Um, we also know that things as simple as walking are extremely helpful. And so lower intensity workouts, like between 50 and 70% of your max heart rate, um, those are usually going to be associated with a decline in your glucose or a stability of your glucose during the workout. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, cause you're not going to be done. You're not going to be releasing those stress hormones and dumping out the glucose and dump from the liver. And also your body at those lower, um, intensities are going to be able to actually burn more fat for the workout. It's not going to necessarily be preferentially using glucose. So at lower intensities, our bodies use more fat than they use glucose for okay. exercise. So in that case, you know, you're either going to see a slight dip in glucose or pretty much, um, stable. Um, but even two studies have shown that even two minutes of walking, like every 30 minutes can have a profound impact on 24 hour glucose levels. So the real take home point is like, do something, do it regularly, do it consistently. It does not matter what it is between um, low intensity, high intensity resistance or agility training. What do you personally do? I kind of do all of it. Um, my, my favorite thing to do is more the high intensity stuff. So I'm a big runner and, and biker. I've joined the the Peloton, you know, <laughs> I, COVID, oh, COVID, I succumbed to the Peloton. Um, but so I like just, you know, I have an 
athletic history, basketball and volleyball. And so I just want to like get in there and go crazy. And, you know, I love seeing what happens to my glucose and, um, you know, but I do a lot of hiking as well. So that's sort of a totally different response, you know, Mm -hmm. where it's just like hours of low intensity. And I see a major drop in my glucose. And if I do like an eight hour hike, I'll see like a measurable decrease in my glucose the next day. I think just because my body's like been so primed, um, you know, to be insulin sensitive, but, um, cool. But, um, go ahead. Oh, yeah. I was just going to say, um, it's been, it, I would say the one thing that wearing a glucose monitor has done for me in terms of changing my behavior is I now do a lot more fasted workouts because now that I can see that like my glucose is fine and I like, I am not, I'm not getting hypoglycemic during my workouts. Like there's this perception that like you need to pound glucose before a workout. But the reality is we have like hours of stored glucose in our livers and our muscle cells. So like, there's not really a reason to do that. And actually it's, it's disadvantageous when you're training for some sort of endurance event. And this is, there are, there are people on different sides of the conversation here, but my perspective is if you eat like a banana or a shake before a workout, what's going to happen is you're going to raise your insulin level right before your workout. And unfortunately, insulin, one of the things, it helps your cells take up glucose, but the other thing it does is it blocks any fat from being burned. It's a, it's mm-hmm. a fat blocker basically. So all of a sudden you've basically stopped yourself from being able to burn fat in your workout and you only have a limited amount of glucose. Let's say, you know, I'm training for a half marathon and I want, I need to be running for two hours at a high intensity. I'm going to be burning through all my stored glucose. And then I'm either, I'm going to need to tap into my fat or I'm going to have to eat during the run. Mm-hmm. And if you're constantly eating before your endurance training, you're not training your body to ever use fat during the workout. So by running in or, or training in a fasted state, what happens is you, you burn through your glucose stores. You start with probably lower glucose stores, especially if you've slept and you're fasted and then you work out, you have low glycogen stores in your body. And very quickly, you're going to have to train your body to get those fat burning pathways active. And over the long term, that's what we call this term called metabolic flexibility, where your body basically learns how to use fat and glucose and switch back and forth whenever it needs to. And metabolic flexibility is something you have to train your body to do. And it requires not having insulin high all the time. And it's associated with like much better long-term health outcomes. So, and also it's improved, it's associated with improved exercise endurance, which is why a ton of athletes are just like so excited to try CGM because it's like a little bit of an extra edge of knowing how to fuel during your workout. Uh, yes, yeah, so that's what I do. I, I work out fasted most of the time and I, and I love it. Yeah. What's your opinion on intermittent fasting? Do you, do you have like an eating window that you do or no? Yeah. I mean, I'm very pro intermittent fasting generally. Um, I, I think that, I mean, the, the research evidence overwhelmingly suggests that almost any type of fasting is good for metabolic health. Um, so intermittent fasting, but also prolonged fasting. So whether it be, you know, a 16, eight window that's positive, but like two, three, four, 20 day fasts also have huge impacts on unimproved glycemic control. So yeah, I, I, I typically try to basically do like a, like a 16, eight type of thing, mm-hmm. um, eight hour feeding window. But one thing I'll say, I mean, it, it, and I use the zero fasting app and I love that. Um, and I love the biofeedback from the glucose data showing me that like, you know, if I fast, if I stop eating earlier in the night, my glucose overnight is like flat. 
if I eat late at night, it's like this, it's like up and down all night, like a little jagged line. And to me, I'm just like, God, I can't believe I did that to my body. Like it Mm. had to like, had to bounce back and forth like all night. And what I would say though, I know fasting is very hard for a lot of people. So the, the most important thing I would say is the, if you can't do a full fast, at least stop eating earlier in the night because we get much more insulin resistant as the evening goes on. And so the same food eaten first thing in the morning when the sun is up and eating late at night, the exact same food, you will have a much bigger glucose and insulin response generally at night. And part of that is because of melatonin, which is the hormone that's released as we as we start to go to bed, it's released from the pineal gland when things get dark, it's part of our circadian rhythms. And melatonin actually acts on the pancreas, which releases insulin and kind of changes things up a little bit. Mm-hmm. So you, you just don't, you don't want to eat late at night. So if you're going to choose when to have your meals or even when to put your feeding window, shift it, I would say shift it earlier in the day as much as you can. So, How many hours before bedtime? Well, it's not even bedtime. It is actually the darkness. So yeah, it's interesting. Like before six, before eight, yeah. before 10. I, Whatever you, know, you can I mean, do. In a perfect, it's whatever you can do. Like any little bit matters. I mean, a lot of us like are snacking at midnight, you know, or like yeah. right before bed. That's not abnormal. I'm, I certainly do that sometimes when I'm working late. So it's, it's really just about incremental gains. Um, and I would say if I had to choose a number, I'd say like between five and six thirty PM, maybe for a last meal, but that's really challenging. So, but that would be like a goal to shoot for one of the research studies that was like very powerful was very extreme. And they basically had people eating between the exact same number of calories between either eight and 2 PM, 8 AM and 2 PM or 8 AM and 8 PM, same number of calories, same food content. And the people who ate in the 8 AM to 2 PM window had like significantly better, uh, metabolic health metrics. So that's just, I mean, obviously it's very difficult to stop eating at 2 PM, but, but that just goes to show like moving things, same amount of calories. Basically you get more bang for your buck right. if you eat things earlier. So yeah. Yeah. I guess I'm gonna have to move my treats over to the morning if I'm ever going to have treats. I mean, it makes sense. I would recommend that. Yeah. And then and you don't have the psychological, like, I don't know if you ever had the psychological, like, oh, I'm waiting for the treat. And then you, you waited all this time and then you like kind of break versus you have it in the morning okay live your life i like that i think psychologically that's a good strategy too Mm. less of like using food as a reward or tool and more of just like acceptance and you know optimization so yeah i mean i love this levels idea that you guys are doing so because you're getting all this i mean you're getting a lot of gorgeous data and, and, and I'm sure people are probably logging some food and, you know, you said logging some exercise and, and kind of seeing it all. And I think the one thing I found, and I'm, you probably can relate, like using data to improve something can be very powerful. So, you know, I know that I shouldn't eat that whatever at 10 p.m. But if I see that, like you said, where I see that spike start to happen, like that reminder, I think that can have a really powerful thing like you're saying like doctors need to be taught nutritional intervention nutritional intervention is super hard for people to do right like period so i wonder if this what you guys are doing here with levels i know you're doing a lot of athletes too but eventually it can just help regular people change their lives because they'll be influenced by their own data what do you think that's what i want to see happen i think that's exactly where we're going and you know my sort of like unpopular 
statement of the year, I would say, is like, I don't think that doctors are going to solve the metabolic health crisis. Like, I don't think they're the right people to do it because of the nature of the problem. So it's, and that's unpopular because like, this is a huge, huge industry, like metabolic health. Um, But I think that a tech enabled solution is is the right approach. It's not a different approach or another or a tangential approach. I think it is fundamentally the right approach. And the reason I say that is because this is a, this is a, a set of processes and, and diseases and symptoms that are coming on because of the, the hundreds of daily choices that we make every single day of when to move, what to eat, how to pair foods, how we manage stress, whether we choose to meditate, you know, whether we choose to put our phone away before bed, all these things, every choice has some like impact on metabolic Mm -hmm. health, like, um, how we choose to react to a different, difficult conversation. And so those are, those are these choices that lead to these bigger picture things. So then to say like, Oh, a 50, one lab test a year and a 15 minute visit with a doctor a year is gonna, is gonna somehow impact those thousands and thousands of choices. So I started imagining like, how can I be on my patient's shoulder every second of every day, basically whispering in their ear, like kind of what the right decision is. And I realized two things. One, that's not possible. Even if we had an army of coaches in the country, it's not possible. And two, I don't know what is right for a patient because despite the research literature that we have that suggests that some, you know, certain foods have a low glycemic index and certain exercises are good for metabolic health, what we've learned over the past three or four years is that the biochemical individuality means that everyone responds differently. So not only can I not be there, I also don't know. And so you need the technology and you need the real-time feedback. And this has to be patient-driven. It has Mm -hmm. to be user-driven. On top of all of that, there is very little incentive for the food industry and the healthcare industry to take a huge role on this because it's not actually aligned financially right now it it may move in that direction but it's not so for all of those reasons um i think a patient driven patient data driven you know very much more of a behavioral focused intervention of closing the loop um letting them make the decisions highlighting their biochemical individuality and their agency and empowering people to make the decisions it that is going to change it it's not going to be top down it's going to be bottom up and so you know i'm basically saying that like being a doctor is not that valuable in this regard, which is, you know, I'm, and that's, I'm being a little bit contrarian and like extreme there, but I, I do think there's going to be a huge role for technology here to solve. And we have to be thinking creatively about these problems because they're bigger problems than we've ever faced in health before. We've got, you know, well over a hundred million Americans with diabetes, or, I'm sorry, pre-diabetes or diabetes. Mm-hmm. And we have 74% of Americans with, uh, overweight or obesity, like this is not, these are, we're talking in the millions. So we've got to solve it. So, yeah. I love it. You know, you keep saying there's individual um, variability and I, so does that mean like a hundred calories for me is different than a hundred calories for you? Like, and you, I think you even said it goes, you can have a blood glucose response go from two when you eat something to 50 when, Joe eats it. That's like a 25 X increase. Like how it it is like this, this is, it's, that sounds like, do you have any sense of, in terms of metabolism? And I don't know even how to measure it. Maybe it's the glycemic response, but what percent, what is the variability there? Is it 10%? Is it, you know, 500% difference? Is it hard to measure? Cause everything is so individualized. You could be stressed. I could be having a fun time. I had a lot of sleep. You didn't, 
like yeah i'm trying to get like what is that actual variability between people if you control for everything you can control for yeah it's big i don't i don't know the uh exact number but i'll describe a graph that you see in the four main papers that have um that have looked into this and okay. it's been repeated now multiple times in JAMA cell, the biggest journals. And if you do show notes, I'm happy to, to link. Yeah. The, I would love that. Cause they're, the, the, they're graphs that will, they changed our lives, right? They like made us feel like this is, you know, the, we, we've got to get this information to people. So here's a graph. You've got an X axis, which is um, time. And you've got a Y axis, which is glucose range. And you've got a bunch of curves like, um, on that, which is people, different people's glycemic responses. And let's say that graph has 50 lines on it. Basically what you're going to see is some that are flat and some that are huge peaks. And you're going to see everything in between like a full on spectrum. Mm -hmm. And so every one of those people have the exact same carbon take. And you're seeing just a full on spectrum from huge response to low response to the same amount of carbs. And that's what pretty mm -hmm. much all of the studies showed. So it's not like it's bimodal where it's like, there's some non-responders and there's some hyper-responders. It's very much a spectrum of response. And for people that are like high responders to that food, they probably should not be eating that food. I mean, it, it, or, right. and, and maybe down the road, and, and sorry, I'll back up. I shouldn't say that. They probably shouldn't be eating that food in isolation the way that they were doing it in the study. You can certainly modulate that food. So let's say it was a sweet potato. Or actually, let's say it's beans. This is something that we see a huge variability in our users. Mm -hmm. Like I am 100% whole foods, plant-based vegan. So I eat, you know, 75 grams of fiber a day. I eat m multiple cups of beans a day. And I think my hunch is that like my microbiome and everything has just like sort of developed to a place where I just do not respond. I don't have a glucose response to beans. Um, and I usually cover the beans in some sort of, you know, fat source. So there's fat, there's protein from the beans, there's fiber in the beans and all those things lower the response. But we have users who have like a 50 or 60 point jump in response to beans because they're a very high carb food. So, you know, so what could one of those people do? Like if they still wanted to eat beans, which are a very healthy food, so they could eat their beans with extra fat and protein, both of which blunt glucose spikes, they slow gastric motility, they'll make you absorb it slower. Um, they could add vinegar to their beans with some sort of vinaigrette dressing. We know that vinegar actually makes us a little bit more insulin sensitivity sensitive and reduces the glycemic response. They could make sure they do a high intensity interval training workout the morning before they have their huge bean dinner. They could make sure that they aren't stressed or they've slept really well when they have their favorite bean dish. I mean, this is a funny example because no one's as excited about beans, <laughs> but you know what I'm saying? Like, yeah, I, I hear you. Yeah. hundred percent. Like, we, you, you have to think about this as a multivariate model that, you know, we have so many levers to pull. We just don't know what they are and which ones work for us. And so nothing is like off limits, which is a part of why I love the technology and why I love glucose as a data stream. You can just create these, you know, contexts. And over time, what we've found, and cause like our founding team, we've been wearing CGMs now for, you know, almost a year. So at this point I am pretty darn dialed in. I know how to keep my glucose stable. I did not at first. Um, and over time you really kind of build what I would call metabolic intuition, which is just sort of this approach to all these different variables, exercise, sleep, stress, you know, food, you know, vinegar, 
food combinations, food timings, you just build a context where you just sort of understand what's going to happen and what levels levers to pull. And it does get a lot easier. But I think the key to that is this constant feedback month after month sort of saying, you build this awareness, this, this intuition, and that's an exciting place to get. Um, and I think what people are hungry for, because right now people are super confused about what to eat. Yeah, I no want it. I want, I want, I mean, hopefully knowing one of the co-founders will let me somehow get one of these things because I want one now, like badly. Let's get uh, you in. Yeah, it's totally. Um, we have a 20,000 person waiting list, but we... <laughs> uh, well, shh, don't tell anybody if I skip the line. <laughs> no, we'd love to get you involved. Um. That's so. That's really fascinating, interesting. I think this can. It's kind of really gonna, from personalized medicine. So obviously, we're looking at glucose. It sounds like glucose is actually. I mean, it's pretty. It's It's robust in its simplicity. So I love that about it. Um, what else are you excited about? Like maybe ten years, two years, three years down the line, of what we can, how we can really personalize our life, our medicine, our health. You know, by looking at data that we can collect and analyze ourselves. Yeah. So I'm, I'm very excited for more real-time biomarkers. Right now, glucose is the only blood biomarker we can right. measure continuously at home. And good, luckily, it's super powerful and, and really wonderful. But I think there's going to be other things that emerge as really useful. And many groups are kind of working on this. But so multi-analyte sensors, something that, you know, measures ketones or inflammatory markers or along with glucose and other sort of um, internal markers, I think could be really helpful to help people really shape the healthiest lifestyle possible. Um, I do feel like glucose is the most important one, but something that measured inflammation in real time, I think would be really, really cool to see um, and help people really solidify behavior change. What my practice now clinically is focused on, I do functional medicine now, which is really focusing on like the root causes of diseases. So as a you don't not thinking about diseases as sort of these isolated silos and then playing like whack-a-mole with mm -hmm. all of them, but actually thinking of how they're interconnected. And this is really based on research in systems and network biology, where we've been able to really understand the underlying molecular links between disease and attack at that level. And one of those molecular links is glucose dysfunction, you know, inflammation is another one, but figuring out biomarkers that help us attack the underlying links of disease is where I want to see medicine go. Because ultimately that's a really efficient way to approach health. If you can have a lever that affects multiple pathways, it's more efficient. So that's what I'd like to mm. see um, happen in healthcare. And I think the second thing is that, um, you know, I am kind of like a holistic hippie at heart too, you know, and I think there's a lot of really amazing ancient wisdom that we're seeing you know, now get studied and we understand it more. Things like mindfulness and meditation and, you know, really powerful medicinal herbs like turmeric and, you know, curcumin and ginger and, and these things that are traditional, but um, now we understand the molecular biology of it. And so um, what I'm excited about is to see this really merger of ancient wisdom and advanced molecular biology and nutrigenomics and um, and how those things are now kind of coming together. And ultimately, I think it's going to move people, hopefully through all this advanced tech and biofeedback, ultimately, I'm hoping it's going to move people back to a really centered place of focusing on the fundamentals um, in a really nuanced way. Things like um, how we stress, how we connect to people, how we sleep, how we eat, um, get us back closer to the earth. Um, you know, we know microbiomes 
has a huge impact on metabolic health. And, you know, our microbiome is, is enriched by being close to the dirt, close to the earth. And so, you know, I'm, I'm seeing this sort of boomerang effect of really advanced tech and technology that hopefully mm -hmm. brings us back to a really centered, you know, beautiful relationship with people and the earth. So. I love that. Uh, do you practice mindfulness yourself? I try, you know, yeah, it's, sure. it's, <laughs> it's, it is hard. It is hard. And, and, you know, I'm definitely not perfect at it, but, um, I am a big believer in the power of breath. Um, so breath work is my, my big. Uh, so that just, that just felt good. <laughs> You'd feel good. Yeah. I'm glad you did that. Um, pretty obsessed with the vagus nerve. Is that something you're familiar with? The vagus? Yeah. 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 So the vagus nerve is, you know, from the brainstem down to the diaphragm. And every time you breathe, you're basically flattening your diaphragm, stretching the vagus nerve. And that's the nerve that essentially releases neurotransmitters that make you feel mm -hmm. relaxed. So um, breathing and just stimulating that vagus nerve and doing different things that help stimulate that nerve are like what I focus on throughout the day. And there's lots of different techniques for stimulating the vagus nerve, breathing, I think being the most powerful one. But um you know, there's other things that you can do as well. Um, you know, uh, you can do alternate nasal breathing, which not only stimulates the, the, the diaphragm, but also is going to stimulate the vagus nerve innervates basically your whole upper air digestive tract. So by having that like really slow, powerful breathing, you're stimulating the nerve sort of all the way down. So, um, yeah, a lot of traditional breathing techniques, um, the Kundalini stuff. Exactly. Yeah. I've been doing um, Waking Up by Sam Harris. That was my introduction to uh, Love Sam Harris. Love Sam Harris so much. Sam Harris, baby. Um, yeah, and I mean, that really, I did the 50 days, and that was eye-opening to me of um, how much we have just this thing going on in our heads all the time that it's, there's a different thing that is actually conscious than us in life, um, which I found, like, real... I wonder if there's a study that shows you people that mindful, you know, they're doing meditation, what happens to their blood glucose? It Probably some, something good, exactly. Yeah, <laughs> I was figured. But that's wonderful that you, so you did 50 days straight? I did 50 days and I'm still practicing, yeah. That's amazing. And have you noticed changes in your, in your life? And 100%. I mean, I, I noticed that sometimes I can just get myself into a loop, into that stress loop, and I can actually separate and say, hey, just wait a second. That's just thoughts running through. That's not actually me. And, you know, for like a microsecond, you can glimpse uh, kind of that ego death where you're like, oh, wait a second. There is nothing. I'm just, this is consciousness. And whatever this emotional pain or even emotional happiness that you're experiencing, well, that's just like thoughts happening. It's not, I mean, what is reality? But it's not, you know, it's, it, it's different. So, mm. Definitely. Yeah. It's, um, it's exciting to see how much this is becoming part of the ethos of our culture right now. I yeah. think it's, it's powerful. And, and I think, I don't know if we've had a little bit of an era of disconnection and now people are really the pendulum swinging and people are really trying to, yeah, to get back to that sense of connectedness and centeredness, but it's, I'm hearing, you know, you're kind of hearing it everywhere. And I think it's very, very exciting, especially knowing what it can do for overall health as well. But, um, yeah, I'm, I'm certainly very intrigued by that striving for that idea of ego death. Like you mentioned, you know, losing this sense of this artificial boundary of self and, and, and really feeling, you know, as a biologist and a scientist, like I, I 
I think of the body as this, you know, conglomeration of atoms that's sort of this energetic hub existing in a larger energetic hub of the, the you know, of matter. Um, we're kind of, you know, a clump of matter existing around all this other stuff. And, and you know, our, our perception of self is, is kind of artificial, right? It's like we have these boundaries of what is self and what is other. And so like on a biologic level, you know, we know that we're all just this big, it's a big swarm of atoms, right, on our planet and our universe. But it's interesting to think about meditation and kind of getting to that loss of, you know, ego death and sense of oneness, nirvana, whatever, you know, people have so many different words for it, of almost like getting to a place of feeling or embodying what we kind of know to be true on the material mm -hmm. level, which is essentially unity. Um, and so, yeah, I haven't, I haven't gotten as far as you have, I think to even maybe have that sort of, um, split second feeling of it, but it's certainly, it's, it's something I strive for as well. And it's, it's, yeah. it's interesting to see so many people moving towards that. So. No, that's pretty awesome. Um, I saw you made like, looks like delicious zoodles with like some cream sauce. That looked, I mean, look tasty. I gotta say. Thank you. <laughs> so you got the vitamins Dr. right there. <laughs> Dr. Casey's kitchen, check it out on Instagram. So what's, what are you doing with that? Is, is that just like your unique recipes or just sharing with people like how to, yeah, tell me about it. Yeah, it started, you know, like over a year ago where I basically was just, I'm like I mentioned, I'm whole, I'm whole foods plant-based. So I basically try to eat all unprocessed, unrefined. Have you been that way for a long time? You know, I've mo I've, I did this a little bit in medical school. Then I went to surgical residency and everything went out the window because it was just survival mode. And I would just shove whatever I could right. in my face when I had time to eat. I was, you know, working all the time. And it was just like, yeah, went totally off the wagon. And concurrently, my body kind of fell apart. So um, when I was out of the surgical world, you know, it was very easy to recommit to really healthful eating. And um, my... I mentioned in college, I studied personalized gen genetics and, and my really big focus within, within that was nutrigenomics. So that's how food compounds change gene expression. Um, and that's something I'm still really passionate about today and really is the foundation of why I'm whole foods plant-based because essentially in my mind, like food is a molecular activator. Um, and so I feel this sense of like, every time I eat, I'm basically making a decision of how I want my genes to be expressed. And you know, what we know is that um, a lot of plant foods do kind of insane magical things for gene expression. So, you know, for instance, like um, broccoli sprouts or any cruciferous vegetables, um, they contain a chemical compound called sulforaphane. And sulforaphane is an NRF2 activator, which basically reduces, NRF2 is a gene that basically reduces our oxidative stress in the body, reactive molecules in the body. So, like when I'm eating broccoli or broccoli sprouts, cabbage, bok choy, like I'm like, I'm activating NRF too. And when I eat, you know, turmeric, which I eat all the time, I'm like, okay, well, I'm getting curcumin, which is a NF-kappa B inhibitor. NF-kappa B is our um, master inflammatory gene and it's activated by all of our bad dietary habits in our culture. Mm -hmm. And so like when I eat that turmeric in my smoothie, I'm like, yep, downregulating like NF-kappa B. It's, it's like that for almost you know, like everything I eat at this point, garlic has alanine, which is, you know, got all this other properties. So, um, so my plant-basedness is very much rooted in molecular biology and nutrigenomics. And so it's very easy for me to, people say like, oh, it seems restrictive. It seems hard. And I'm like, I don't feel that way at all. I feel like it's empowering. It's makes my relationship with food exciting. I think of the earth as this like 
incredible. I'm communicating with the earth through food in a way that helps me express my best self. Like it's, it's really the most beautiful relationship I've ever had with food. And, um, ultimately like makes me, even though it's very rooted in science, like makes me want to just like get closer to plants and get closer to the earth. Um, so I, I love I, plants. Plants are cool. Got my broccoli sprouts back here. <laughs> <laughs> so, but, but I, basically Dr. Casey's kitchen was like, this thing, I don't see a lot of people talking about food that way. I also don't see a lot of plant-based recipes that I think are actually that healthy. Like, and I'm like, I'm eating like Alfredo pasta made entirely of plants. I'm eating all this delicious stuff that's like amazing and easy to make. I also cook like a surgeon. I have no time, you know, I don't have a lot of time. So I am like rapid and efficient in the kitchen. I was like, I want to put this all together in a way that, you know, makes people think a little bit outside the box about plant foods. It looks, I mean, it's interesting. Like, yeah, I mean, I still eat meat and I love a nice steak, but vegetables are delicious. And I'm sure a lot of people anecdotally will tell you when I eat vegetables, I feel good. I feel light. When I eat a huge steak, I feel like, meh. And so it's like, uh, it makes sense. I, but I love how you're bringing this like scientific approach. I'm, what, what I'm thinking about now is how long, and I'm sure we'll get there one day, like 50 years from now where, you know, real, you know, we'll be able to analyze our genetic variances and actually tell you exactly what you should and should not be eating and, and like, I mean, do you think that's going to happen one day? And is that going to happen in our lifetime? There's a company that's already trying to do this, actually called Genopalette. And you can send in a little, I think, saliva sample and get some recommendations on, like, what foods are going to be um, yeah. most helpful for you. And then, you know, and then there's other companies like um, Viome who are doing more, like, personalized diet based on microbiome. Um, mm -hmm. So, so I think things are moving in, in that direction. Um, is it going to be exponential? You know, are we going to have Murphy's law here? You know, I honestly don't think so with genetic testing for diet, because again, this is inherently, well, first of all, genetics is very dynamic. Like we have our genetic code, but like our current physiology and biology affects the genetic expression and kind of what we need very dynamically. But like a genetic test is a static one time, one point in time thing. So it's again, inherently an open loop form of feedback. It's mm -hmm. not like, I, I'm not confident that knowing your genetic results is going to have a huge impact on behavior change because behavior change is not rooted in knowledge. Mm -hmm. We know that people can know exactly what to do and still not do it. Yeah. Um, and so whether it's going to actually be a, a huge motivator of moving people in the right direction. I'm not sure. I think if we were able to measure genetic expression dynamically, I think that would actually, and I think we can definitely get there. That I think would be extremely powerful. Um, and I actually believe there's a company trying to do that, um, with a few different genes. Um, and I'm totally spacing on the name, but, but basically like, what are your genetic readouts, um, in, Oh, you know what it is? It's a company that's making a turmeric supplement that's very high potency. And then I think you get a kit every three months to see how your NF-kappa B gene expression has changed. So that's, I think that's getting in the right direction cool. yeah. towards biofeedback. But again, it's like very delayed reaction time. So whether it's actually going to change people's day-to-day -day behavior, not sure. Like mm. I'm, I'm pretty biased towards, towards you know, closed loop feedback and, and hacking the reward circuitry of the brain. Cause we're dealing with addictive substances. So we have to combat that with like equally addictive feedback loops. And when you don't, 
the food uh, I love that. Equally addictive feedback loops. You should that that's a good quote right there. <laughs> Haven't said that one before. <laughs> <laughs> um and how do you come up with your delicious recipes? You're just like whatever, you're just trying things out yourself, surgeon style? Yeah, well the I I cook based on principles. So like I basically almost everything I make has the same set of components. Every single meal I make, I try to have boatload of fiber, like some amount of protein, um, omega-3 fats, um, some sort of really healthy whole food fat, and then like a ton of phytonutrients. So that's going to be like cups of vegetables or whatever. Mm -hmm. Um, so most of my meals like require basically the, the, the principles of a whole food plant-based diet is you're eating fruits, vegetables, nuts, seeds, legumes, and grains. Although I don't, I don't really eat much grains because of, you know, the glucose stuff. But, mm -hmm. um, so you're basically just like, now you're modularizing your diet. You have like all of these different things and you're just kind of pairing them together in different ways. So, um, yeah. So, Mm -hmm. essentially I'm just kind of like choosing like what vegetables, fruits, nuts, seeds, and legumes do I want to mix together for a meal? And then the options for that are just like infinite. So I can take nuts and I can make, I can blend nuts in the Vitamix with some lemon juice and tamari and garlic and make like a super thick, creamy, almost like sour cream sauce, like in two seconds and like put that on a little veggie scramble. I can take, you know, the same seeds and make a nut milk in, in two minutes. Um, mm -hmm. It's just like, it's really all about like changing the forms and that way it's kind of like a science experiment every day. So, um, That's yeah, cool. infinite combinations. It's yeah. Um, we have a segment on the show called hot tips. It's basically, um, you can give any hot tip you want. I mean, you just gave a bunch of hot tips. Now you got to come up with another one. It can be, it can be about metabolic health. It could be about a book. It could be a song. It could be anything. It's time for hot, hot tips. All right. It's hot tips time. <laughs> yeah, I know. I love this. I love this. I feel like I've done a lot with food. Yeah, you so could do something actually completely different. Then. Yeah. Um, okay. <laughs> I know. It's okay to take a time to think about it. <laughs> One thing I've been getting into, which I think has been really fun, is reading the Stoics, um, mm -hmm. you know, like Marcus Aurelius, Seneca, people like that. Um, so I think the book, The Daily Stoic, is a really fun book to get as a way to like, you know, I've been working like everyone on morning routines. And one of my favorite parts of my morning routine is reading the passage from The Daily Stoic. Um, so yeah, I, I, that would be my like, Who wrote that? Or is that a collection of the Stoics? It's a collection of the Stoics and I forget the author who That's put okay. it all together, but, um, but it's, it's a bunch of the different ones and it's like a good sampler pattern, but I'm just, it kind of makes me feel really connected to history. Cause I'm like the stuff that they're talking about is just so relevant to what we're dealing with today. Um, and, uh, and so it's really good. And then I guess second hot tip, because we were just talking about this, would be to listen to Sam Harris's podcast. Yes. That gets me excited every time I listen to it. He, he you know, I, I, I applaud him for trying to tackle some of these really hard, challenging issues of our time in what I find to be a very, like, intellectual and um, emotionless almost in a good way. Mm -hmm. way. Mm 
Hmm, that's he's awesome. rational and we need he's rational yeah, yeah. We need more of that so. we need more of that that's for sure um favorite waterfall in the pacific northwest oh my gosh yes oh my <laughs> gosh okay so um falls creek falls um panther creek falls um tamanawas falls those Ooh. are my three three i love yeah and um what do you do? You just go a hike up, check it out. Do you go for a swim? Is it, is it ever warm enough to swim? Yeah, there is a really great place to swim called Aniata Falls. You actually wade, like it's a very shallow river in the middle of a very narrow gorge, very mm -hmm. narrow, like 30 feet wide. And you can wade a quarter of a mile in and then like sort of swim underneath the waterfall. And it's totally magical. So that's Aniata Falls. That Portland, that, that sounds amazing. It's like 40 minutes from the city. It's, yeah, Portland waterfall game is very strong. <laughs> All right, it sounds amazing. Where are you located? I'm in San Diego, so, I mean, oh. it's, not, it's not so bad here either. And I, you know, I've been going to the ocean while the water's gone. Just mm, pristine right now. It's been wonderful taking dips, but. Uh, Have you noticed a change in the water? Yeah. It, oh, my gosh. Wow. It's, it's much warmer now, yeah. Oh, I thought you meant, um, I was thinking you were talking more like pollution with COVID. Oh, oh, well, it, what I meant by clear is it wasn't, it was just clear water, like not, I mean, I don't, I can't say it's because of COVID. I think it's just yeah. sometimes you have more seaweed, sometimes you have less seaweed. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> that would be interesting, though, if there's a correlation, because I mean, you, I know that's from a smog perspective, everything was like down. I wonder if we're back to our crazy ways, probably. Mm. We're getting there. I know it's sad. That's great. Um, the ocean now. That's wonderful. Yeah, it's, I, I'm very grateful. I love it here. But Portland is not bad either. Um, beautiful, especially now, probably in July. Um, okay. Well, any questions for me? This was awesome. I, uh, I think we learned a lot here. Man, what a great convo. I feel like we could talk for so much longer. We and could. I'm so, so happy to be connected now. And um, what, like, this is just a really stimulating conversation. I, I really appreciate you having me. I, I, I loved it. Thank you. Thank you for coming on. Um, yeah. I, I want listen come on you can get me on that list yeah. i want to i want to try that get you, we will get you a sensor and for those if any i bet there's a lot of people who are like i want one so i'll just plug um we are unlock levels on instagram and twitter and www.levelshealth.com and i have been writing voraciously on our blog so levelshealth.com slash blog it is not fluff it is really like pretty intense research-based articles and so anyone who wants to learn more about like metabolic health stuff um I, that's a great that's place awesome. to go um so yeah how long how long until like i i can just someone can just buy levels and just get it going what do you think or is that a secret yeah probably we were planning for like a full launch later this year so awesome. yeah so it's in in the but the best thing to do now is to sign up for the wait list and um you'll start getting emails and education from us and you know start the process and uh and then when you get the sensor you'll be just ready to go so i'm yeah. excited happy friday shabbat shalom happy awesome. friday <laughs>